Welcome to the College of Europe podcast, where we debate European affairs and more. The College of Europe is launching a podcast that will take stock of the academic and intellectual debates on the European Union and will contribute to the overall discussion on the future of Europe. For this first episode, we will listen to a conference given by the European General Study Programme in the framework of their conference series, Global Europe in the Real New Millennium. In this talk, Professor Patrick Pasture, History Professor at KU Leuven, and Professor Wolfram Kaiser, visiting professor at the College of Europe, will analyze what can history learn us about the current dynamics of European integration. This conference was entitled The Empire That Never Was, a Global History Perspective on European Integration. It was set up by Didier Jorgagakis, the European General Studies Coordinator. Hope you will learn a lot. Enjoy! The question I was asked to answer today was the following. What does the global history of Europe tell us about contemporary dynamics? Ooh. <laughs> Quite overwhelming, I must say. I, I did not really where to start. And one of the problems, what is global history? Um, is that the history of the world? Is that the history of process of globalization? Or is it something else? When to start? For me, it's basically a history of transregional and transcontinental interactions between regions. And that's already saying a lot, because that means it's not necessarily about the whole world, and that also does not imply a certain chronological kind of border, boundaries or identification. So it can be actually about everything. I will return to some of the questions and the approaches that I developed in that book, Imagining European Unity Since 1000 AD. Anyway, what I have to say is that the title of that book, and also the perspective, is a little bit misleading, as actually it is not about plans or ideas about European unity. It is about that, but I actually I use that to tell a different story about Europe to look at the basic issues of European history, what I consider the basic is, is issues of European history. I just use that idea of plans and imaginations about European unity. What I do in the book and what I want to present today is a certain approach. And that approach is, or I call that, a decentering approach or decentering perspective. Some of you may have heard about decentering because it's very actual today in international relations. The historical approach of decentering is slightly different. For the international relations specialist, and particularly a specialist of, of European foreign policy, then it is really looking at the view, the perspective of non-Europeans about Europe. In the historical professions, historians uh, interpret the concept broader than that. It is actually always different ways of looking at something, at a subject, from different angles. It is important to understand that decentering can also be applied to everything. It can be applied to historical events, but it is very often also the view of these events. It is about historical narratives. It's about 
political narratives as well. My historical decentering perspective includes a number of dimensions. First of all, of course, is that element of space. Space, and that is a bit similar as the international relations perspective, it is the view from others, if we are speaking about decentering Europe, is the view of others on Europe. But there is also that interactional aspect. It is about, again, if we speak about Europe, in part on the impact of Europe on the others, but viewed from the non-Europeans. But it is also on how this interaction with others, whoever that are, on Europe itself. And that is actually a very important element of this decentering uh, dimension. A third element is time. Time looking at certain objects, also the present, from a broad, long-term historical perspective, creates a sense of distance. And it is that kind of distance that is essential to a decentering approach. Looking at Europe or history from this longer time perspective challenges the way we look at things. Because especially in Europe, the way we look at things, the way we look approach things, is very often from a very presentist perspective, where our perception of the past is really uh, determined by the present, but also we have the tendency not to look back very much. And to illustrate that with a very simple, concrete example, we all know, or think to know, that the perspective of Europeans and Chinese on time is entirely different. I always like to say that these Chinese have that millennium perspective on history. But where you see that very clearly is, for example, in the history of colonialism. For Europeans, usually colonial times look very, that's very long time ago. But for the Chinese, or for Africans, certainly not. And events that happened in the 19th century, I think about the Opium Wars, I think about the Boxer Uprising, that is what I in part mean, bringing this historical perspective in, is questioning also our uh, appreciation of time. So the perspective, the purpose of decentering is to question what seems obvious, what we assume without further thinking, bringing in the perspective of the outsiders, whoever that may be. The idea is that offers a deeper understanding about the subject, but is also important for our relations with others. And then the example of this Chinese is evident. It helps to know the sensitivities and the way others look at certain events of the past. With regard to European history, it's a way to overcome Eurocentrism. Eurocentrism is in that way exactly the opposite, viewing the world from oneself, viewing the world from the perspective of our own place and history. History in a very broad perspective. To illustrate what decentering can mean, is a concept that many of you may be very familiar with. It is the normative power theory. I think that, yeah, I see people nodding normative power is very popular. The values associated with Europe in this kind of context is not exactly those that are prominent in the 
theories about normative Europe. It's certainly not those that are on the website of the EU, for example, as the fundamental values or expressed in certain treaties of the EU. So it's often something entirely different. So how others perceive Europe in this respect is one of the key questions that the decentering approach develops. But there is something that I want to add immediately. That is that you cannot assume answers. In fact, the decentering approach asks questions. It doesn't give the answers. The answers come out from the research. But it's very important to realize that answers differ and that you really have to go to the details. And one of the things that a decentering approach emphasizes, that's certainly different from, for example, colonial or post-colonial approaches, is that it really invites or compels you to get rid of simple dichotomies. History is never that simple. And if you go to look at the perception of, perception of others, you will see a, a wide variety of answers, a wide variety of uh, perceptions. For example, um, to develop just a little bit in, in one word, this colonial perspective, you will find in a lot of sources as basic values of European greed, materialism, disrespect for local laws and rules of behavior, you will find that very often. But you will find also very different kinds of appreciations. It's not always that negative. And even if the, the perceptions are more positive, then still it can be entirely different. The Japanese, during the Meiji Restoration, for example, we know quite well how they developed a view of Europe. And it's still a fascinating story because you know, for East Asians, Europe needed to be imagined first. That's, that's the first thing you have to think about, the Europe. fascinating history, by the way. Japanese, also Chinese, associated with Europe. Yes, it's created. Yes, it's materialism. But it is also Christianity, for example. Quite general, by the way, that Christianity is associated with Europe. Colonialism, one of the basic values, between quotation marks, of Europeans are colonialism. And that's one of the big lessons that the Japanese drew from their encounters is, well, to be as strong as Europeans, we have to colonize. And that is what they did. They did so, by the way, in different ways as Europeans did. But that's a different story. To move on a little bit in what I wanted to say, we easily speak about colonialism, particularly in these days again. But if we look at the history of European, those plans for European integration, for example, we see very more com much complex story here too. For example, what I wanted to point at is that ideas about European unity emerged very often from a sense of threat of fear of being marginalized. And that is already the case very early in the 1820s. A certain Konrad von Schmidt Fisseldeck, for example, they looked in particular at the early United States and already then saw 
in the United States, a potential danger for Europe. And from that perspective, he pleaded for a strong European Federation, even with a proper army in the 1820s. It's a fascinating history to look at the relationship between the United States and ideas and plans about European unity. Because, yes, there is that element of possible threat, and that really is a competitor. That's really something that comes back again and again in the 1820s, in the later 1890s, and later again, uh, 1890s particularly. But at the same time, it offered ideas of how to compete with that threat of the United States. For example, creating a common market, a customs union, a strong federation, but also the idea of colonizing. And that's a bit strange because we don't associate the United States with colonizing. But in the end of the uh, 19th century, they looked at the United States conquering the West, and that idea was taken up by Europeans not to go west, because west is the ocean, but to go south to Africa. is one of the ideas that inspired Europeans to go to colonize Africa. And making an explicit link with the conquest of the West. Again, it's a bit surprising perspective. Of course, if we refer to this kind of activities, it's slightly different from what we think about what European integration was about, isn't it? The basic narrative is that of making peace and going to conquer Africa is not exactly a pacific project. That's true, but always, and I, th I think this is absolutely true. And if you, again, look at the perspective of non-Europeans, if they look at European institutions, the history of European integration, it's something that really is emphasized for the more recent period, of course. The perception of European integration is a peace project. But of course, the history of European integration is much more than about peace. It is about peace, but it's about much more. I always like to jokingly say that the first plans for a European Union was for the crusade. It's a bit laughing because yeah, I refer to the Middle Ages and it did not, we never think about European integration as, as, uh, as pleading for some sort of Crusade. But I actually was saying that European integration is also inspired by threats. I mentioned the United States, but quite surprisingly, already around 1900, at the height of European colonialism, fear of an um, awakening of Asia were already quite present and motivated to some extent calls for a European Union. That is also relatively important, and we see that in that context, ideas about a European army with regard to the Boxer uprising, the concept of a European, and I stress European army, appeared both in sources in China and in Europe. So there, notwithstanding the fact that the European, the army that went, the intervention army that went uh, to China in 1900, uh, 1900, sorry, was not a European army, it was perceived as such. And that's a very interesting phenomenon. I already 
referred in that respect also to the Eurafrica project. Eurafrica, that was not simply called upon in the late 19th century, but continued within Europe as a major theme until the late 1950s, in fact, until the early 1960s. A colonial dimension, an Eurafrican dimension, was explicitly included in the Treaty of Rome. It was a much diluted version, but it was nevertheless a certain call for Europeans to associate with Africa, and the background is complex, but it has its origins in that Eurafrican idea. It is very quickly forgotten. It's interesting, fascinating history how that has been forgotten both in Europe, understandably, of course, given the quick decolonization, but also very quickly forgotten in Africa. And my hypothesis here is that it was also in the interest of African leaders not to emphasize this dimension, because what continued was a development and assistance program that was uh, part of this uh, colonial, between quotation marks, uh, program, and that benefited uh, African leaders as well. So here too, but I think there is a lot of research to be done still on this African perspective of the Eurafrica project, which is going on at this moment. So we return to the peace project, main element of European integration nevertheless. And what is so fascinating for me, that is that European integration finally brings together a lot of initiatives that had been developed in earlier periods to establish peace. For example, peace through trade interactions, by legal norms, by negotiations and so forth. Each of these separately have been tried and, and but never really tried and tested, I would say, but yes, indeed, tested to some extent, but never worked very much. But altogether, you could say that the European integration process has considerably contributed to pacify Europe. Uh, though at the same time, a more critical outside perspective will show to which extent the start of the European integration project is also after the Second World War is dependent on the influence of the United States. One of the elements, and now I come to the idea of empire, that was in the title of my talk was, one of the elements, I would say, floats over many of these narratives is that the peace system is an alternative for the idea of one empire taking dominance over Europe. In fact, that's an idea that dates or predates already the Congress of Vienna is very much developed with regard to uh, the Napoleonic Empire. But many have believed and continue to believe that this idea that empires have become obsolete in modern Europe because nation states take over. I think that is one of the things that also global history has uh, strongly um, opposed and shown actually this not to be the case. Uh, indeed, empires, though profoundly modified, continue to dominate the European political landscape until the Second World War. And with also the explicit objective, for some at least, to dominate the European continent. Of course, 
We think about, if we speak about the European empires in the 19th and 20th century, we think about colonial empires, but we tend to dissociate, and that is one of the points that this global decentering approach has shown. The whole idea to dissociate European and colonial history, that is fundamentally flawed. You are listening to the podcast of the College of Europe. A couple of years ago, the whole idea of Europe, of the EU as empire, emerged, which is As a historian, I found that very surprising and very strange, to be honest. Even I understand the argument very well. What is referred to in this context is, not, of course, not the idea of an empire that is going to conquer Europe. No. Uh, for example, when uh, José Emmanuel Barroso in 2007 spoke about Europe as empire, he explicitly refer to an idea of a non-imperial empire. And Jan Zilonka, who is a professor here, well known uh, to you, I think, wrote a book about Europe as empire, referring to the idea on the one hand, of course, especially that all the member states become uh, associated by their free will, but also referring to a rather loose federation in which all the different states maintain their sovereignty. Uh, I think that's a very interesting, but in some ways also problematic view, because in the end, the main difference between modern, this, this modern EU and the old empires is particularly in the legitimation of this empire, the sovereignty which lays with the people in uh, the EU and modern European institutions not elsewhere. I think that is an important element. But it is true, and that is quite interesting, and that's one of the last points that I want to emphasize, is that the EU has embraced the values of diversity. And I don't think that anybody realizes to which extent this is a novel idea within European history. Perhaps this is a theme that I have particularly developed in the book Imagining European Unity is one of the first things that struck me a long time when I was starting to do research on Europe is how much Europeans see themselves as being so diverse. But if you compare or you look to Europe from a non-European perspective, from an African perspective, a Southeast Asian perspective, I find it very difficult to understand Uh, why Europeans emphasize so much their diversity. Yes, there is a great uh, political fragmentation, but culturally, the number of languages, uh, we tend to say it's a lot, but compared to the number of languages in Africa or India or Southeast Asia, it's, it's relatively limited. Certainly, if you take into account families of languages, religiously, Europe remained largely homogeneous Christian. The situation in Southeast Asia, where you have Christians, Buddhists, Hinduists, Muslims, and so forth, is quite different in that respect. And this brought me to that, that very fundamental idea that in European history, Europeans have developed a fear of diversity, a deep longing for homogeneity. And that longing for homogeneity 
that comes as deep historical roots. On the one hand, everybody will easily come up with the idea that our Christianity, which is belief in one God and having the monopoly on the truth, but I think that's true. Karen Armstrong, for example, famous author, has mentioned that. But I think the political dimension is certainly as important. The association of church and state, which meant that whoever defends or takes up a different position, dissident position, per definition, also attacks the state, commits some sort of state. And it is that particular association that explains for me this deep longing for homogeneity. What is so remarkable for me is then that this ideal of homogeneity has been continued in a secularized format and even strengthened in a secularized format in the idea of the nation, in nationalism. And that has tremendous consequences in how societies function. But it's really remarkable. And it also, there are many, many interesting dimensions that you can see here. On the one hand, the association of how we think about protection of rights uh, integrated and associated with the nation. But on the other hand, the whole idea of the development of minorities protected, but also isolated and uh, easily you have this whole history of, of deportations, of expulsions, and so forth. Eventually, even in the most extreme cases of organized genocide, which is also part of this history. The last thing is that if you look from a non-European perspective, one thing that, that strikes is also the fact that Europe remained Christian. Clearly, the position of religion, of Christianity within uh, European society changed tremendously. And there is a kind of secularization in the sense particularly of delegitimization of the state. Um, however, the cultural presence of Christianity remained extremely strong. And that is clearly visible from a non-European perspective. And that remains so until today. And that's really something that comes forward in narratives about Europe in many places of Europe, but also comes to the fore in uh, experiences of migrant workers, for example. I was always struck, I must say, by the fact that my colleagues working on migrants systematically ignored this observation that they always said, Europe is just Christian, is Christian. It was always ignored, and that's illustrates a certain, what I call a secularist mindset among, European, among Europeans. And I think it's important because we are now living in a society in a, where religion becomes more visible again, becomes more a political issue again, uh, and the ease by which both populists, but also secularist movements, secularist elites often, return to the question of religion shows how strong this cultural dimension has remained within Europe. I think this is an important element and it is really is something that has been emphasized by global historians. They, they have very much contributed 
to questioning the fundamental secularist narratives about Europe, the secularization thesis and so forth, is partly questioned by global historians from that perspective. So, to conclude, what does global history of Europe tell us about contemporary dynamics? In 2000, historian Deepesh Chakrabarty, I think some people know the work of Chakrabarty, published an important book called Provincializing Europe. Provincializing Europe was not about the marginalization of Europe in international politics. He says himself in the book, that's obvious enough, saying that is also quite challenging. But that's obvious enough. What he really meant is the need for a kind of decolonization of the mind. That was what it is about. Decolonizing European thinking, very prominent today in, with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement as well. What he asked for in the end is a kind of European reset, where Europe would take stock with its history, its contested values and questions its own values and think, well, what, what are our values, taking in account how we have behaved and so forth. And in fact, it's a plea for a new dialogue. And here, what I think is that Actually, if you look at the EU, it, EU, with all the criticism that we can have, has exactly tried to do this to some extent, as really by introducing this narrative of diversity. It has really tried to constitute this kind of break with its own past, how difficult it also was. And because if you look at the European integration history, the very, even when we speak about human rights, the, European Convention of Human Rights is very well known, that actually it's often said it's more radical than the Universal Declaration, but it did not extend to people in colonies, at least not automatically. So some people have said, and I think not without ground, that the European Convention was actually for white men only. But still, there is a whole long way, and the EU today is very much far away from that situation. It sometimes, and that's the last point that I want to say, is that it has made Europeans sometimes quite complacent, to be honest. And I think that is something that came to the fore particularly. It comes in the foreign in contemporary relations with non-Europeans, but it has also very much come to the fore in 1989 in relations with Eastern Europeans. I think a decentering perspective can help to overcome this complacency also, and can help to establish a fresh dialogue. And I think that is really the purpose. And to be honest, the EU, in the end, is quite well placed, because if there is one thing that Europeans finally have learned, that is to engage in a dialogue. With that a bit more positive note, I would like to end. <laughs>
First of all, I happen to agree with you on the function of history to help to understand and explain the presence, and in our case, perhaps the European Union, but that this is also only for historians a secondary function to understanding history itself. So I think that's always when you ask as a sociologist, a political scientist, for example, a historian, can you please make a contribution to understanding how COVID-19 is changing the world now? Then this is something that where historians perhaps will be a little bit reluctant to make comments very quickly on that. So the interest, of course, of most of the students here, because they tend to be students of law or politics or economics, may nevertheless be uh, more pronounced in the field of what is the contemporary relevance of history. So I'm going to try and relate what you've said, perhaps to a slightly greater extent, to some of the contemporary issues in the European Union. And then others who are present here among the students or other um, staff visiting professors can perhaps make additional contributions to that. Now, I also agree on your critical assessment in the book of the historiography of European Union or of the present-day European Union with a capital U as something that has been for a long time quite limited. You, I think if I recall this correctly, that the dominant strand in the historiography is about interpreting integration as, I quote, the coming of age of a particular intellectual tradition. And of course, there are different intellectual traditions that different historians draw on. And while I understand that this is a particular perspective in the history of ideas, I also think that overall this is actually quite a marginal perspective in terms of the historiography of the European Union more generally in terms of the post-war period. So from my perspective, the bigger problem would be that much of this historiography is in a sense ahistorical because it looks at institutional mechanisms, policy problems, decision-making processes, and so on in a particular period of time, but without taking a long-term perspective at the evolution of these or other phenomena in this longer-term time perspective. And that's also where I think your work and your book particularly makes the greatest contribution in terms of adopting this long durée perspective and also in terms of the decentering that you've emphasized so much and more, I think, tonight than in the book itself, where it's somewhat more implicit. Now, there's quite a lot of other literature now that looks at long-term perspectives across the First and Second World Wars, and I've tried to contribute to that myself, but I think there's very little that goes back to before the middle of the 19th century. So I think that's a very important contribution. I also agree on the need, and not just because of contemporary political debates, but for historical reasons, to consider colonialism and decolonization and to explore linkages in the past between European integration ideas and the actual process or politics of European integration in the post-war period and colonialism, the colonial legacy and decolonization. But as you have developed this, I think, more succinctly and for me also somewhat more convincingly here than in the book, actually, I do think that this needs to be conceived more broadly as Europe's, as you put this in a similar way, I think interconnectedness with the wider world and its exchange relations. So, and how this then related to, if you like, the inverted commas, domestic politics of European integration in the post-war period. So this would then also not just be about Europe's relationship with colonial territories in the past, but also with those with the independent near abroad, if you like. You mentioned Russia, for example, and at least you made a side remark today, I think 
something to the Ottoman Empire or modern-day Turkey, for example. And we might even say in the context of the European Union that we now have to consider the United Kingdom after Brexit as well as the Europe's near abroad in inverted commas or the European Union's near abroad and that this is an important relationship to consider in terms of outside-in perspectives that you emphasized and inside-out perspectives. But also in the sense, broader perspective, in the sense that these colonial relationships, and again, you also said that today, and I don't think it's so clear in the book, were not merely, of course, about oppression and exploitation, although a lot of the relationship was about oppression and exploitation, but there was also a lot of cultural exchange, transfer of ideas and practices, and importantly also concepts and practices of politics. In fact, of your book, you refer to calls for égalité in French colonies, which facilitated decolonization. So in other words, the colonizers in the 19th century onwards, from the 19th century onwards, inadvertently spread tools, if you like, for the destruction of their own regime that they established in the colonies. And I think it's this kind of ambivalence in the historical relationship between Europe and the colonial territories and colonized people that I think is really crucial for understanding this relationship and also its impact on post-war European integration. So it's a multifaceted character and it shouldn't be reduced. I'm not saying that you are reducing it to that, but I think sometimes in the contemporary political debate it gets reduced to this regime of oppression and exploitation, which it of course also was. Another point that I would like to make in relation to your arguments in the book uh, is about the spatial dimension, which I think is really important. And you emphasize that a lot in terms of taking a global perspective and looking at other non-European perspectives on Europe and so on, with which, of course, I entirely agree. But I also think that it's really important to understand, and I think that's where your book is perhaps a little bit too much for my taste, a northwestern European history of all of this and continental European history with UK extensions, if you like, which is completely natural, I think, in terms of your own background and where you are based. But nevertheless, it's a northwestern European history of colonialism. But colonialism and the colonial legacy have got very different meanings across Europe and different parts of Europe, which I think is enormously important for understanding contemporary discourses about this. So in the enlarged European Union of the 20th not the six founding member states from the post-war period, many states, of course, have no legacy of own colonialism, like the Republic of Ireland, Finland, Slovenia, Poland, Cyprus, and so on. And instead, some of them, like Ireland, have an experience of having been colonized by other European countries, or other countries like Poland, for example, having been divided, occupied, oppressed by their neighbors for a very long period of time. So, your interpretation of the impact of colonialism on the history of European integration is perhaps to some extent limited to the six founding member states of the EC, and I would say it's perhaps even more relevant to a country like France, possibly also Belgium with its huge colonial territory in Central Africa rather than Italy, about which you talk a little bit more, or Germany, because these countries, of course, who had their own legacy of colonialism and had been a very oppressive force in places like Namibia or in Ethiopia, for example. But, of course, the period of colonialism was shorter, and I think it left much less of an imprint 
on the societies and on the uh, population of these countries, as well as the political elites in terms of their post-1945 orientation in relation to European integration. So I think all the literature that I know shows, for example, that the German policymakers were mainly concerned about economic benefits of getting access to French colonial territories, for example. But these larger geopolitical imaginations of Eurafrique didn't really play a significant role there at all. So that takes me to the next point, which is the Eurafrica idea or the Eurafrica idea of the 1950s. And I'm just wondering, I know this book, which you also cite, of course, by these two Swedes, which is, first of all, it's not really written by historians. Secondly, it's methodologically really bad because they just associate some ideas that they've come across somewhere and make up a history out of this of the post-war forms of continental West European integration as this neo-colonial imperial project, which I don't think is particularly convincing. But the general idea, of course, that the notion of Eurafrique was quite important, you find that in other historiography nowadays as well, particularly in France, is of course relevant. My question is how meaningful was this really outside of France, particularly the idea that this was important for maintaining a European great power status and not just you know, surviving economically in the post-war context of the Cold War and competition with the United States of America and the attempt to contain communism and the Soviet Union. So first of all, of course, it did absolutely nothing to prevent uh, decolonization in the late 1950s and 1960s. Secondly, the colonial territories, as you point out, in most cases were an economic burden. And indeed, the Overseas Development Fund that you're referring to in your book as well, which was created in the context of the EEC, was about burden sharing. It wasn't about benefiting from empire. It was about getting the Germans to pay for some of the investments by the French in their colonial territories, essentially. Also, I think if you look at the politics in the 1960s already and certainly in the 1970s, then the relationship of the EEC and the EEC member states with the ACP, the African, Caribbean and Pacific former, then increasingly former colonial territories of some of the member states of the EEC overall were of low economic and political relevance and became heavily submerged in the Cold War confrontation and the question of whether these countries would be communist or capitalist democratic in some form or shape. And my last point here, I think I would strongly advocate not to confound, and you're doing this a little bit, I think, in your book, probably inadvertently, some of the member states or the member states and member state government with the European communities or European economic community at the time. So you say at one point that the EC, the European community or communities, had to give up its colonial ambitions. Now, the EC was only created as a in 1958, and I think collectively as an actor, the EC never had any colonial ambitions. And I think if you look at the supranational institutions, I think it's difficult to say that about the Commission or the European Parliament, although, of course, there were some continuities. We know this from the literature in terms of how the European Commission managed EC development aid, for example, for the former colonial territories of countries like France and Belgium. Now, my last point is that my understanding of the overall and overarching objective of the book is that you want us to, as historians, but also perhaps uh, more generally as citizens of Europe and the European Union, to enhance our own reflexivity in terms of thinking about Europe and the European, in inverted commas, project from 
a decentered perspective where we take far more into consideration what people in other world regions or countries outside, including former colonial territories, independent states in Africa or Asia, but also from elsewhere like Japan or China, might be thinking about the European Union and our history and how that has impacted on them. And of course, I'm all in favor of that. There's not something that anyone, I think, would seriously want to dispute. But what I would like to say in relation to the contemporary global politics is that at least I see a certain danger that this incredible obsession that we seem to be having with enhancing our self-reflexivity might be used by others in international politics as a kind of moral boomerang to undermine the European Union and its norms and values as they are defined in the Lisbon Treaty. And we see this both from within the European Union and from outside of the European Union. So internally, for example, when the Polish Prime Minister last week talks about the European Union as an imperial project that is preparing the Third World War against Poland, then that's a phenomenally good example of this. And I wonder whether it's not necessary for the European Union perhaps to actually be a little bit less self-reflexive at that point and say, well, there are actually certain norms and values, and even though they are associated with this history, we we still stand by them and want to implement them and insist on them. Or externally, because even I know because of your particular interest in China, also through your marriage, etc., but also in terms of the history and the cultural connections and so on, I think China would be a fantastic example outside of the European Union. Of course, the Chinese have all reason to think about what they conceive of the hundred years of humiliation, to be concerned about the way in which Europeans oppress the Chinese and occupy occupied parts of the country and interfered in its internal politics, and then the US as well and Japan as well. So we are not the only perpetrators, of course. But at the same time, this narrative which precedes, of course, the taking of power by the communists in 1949 has been developed into such a fantastically cohesive narrative by the communist political party now that it's used instrumentally, not just because history matters in China, because they think about it in 2,000-year terms, but it's also used strategically against the European Union and to present Chinese policy, which appears to me to be increasingly less oriented towards dialogue, but far more oriented towards creating their own imperial project for the 21st century. It's being used against Europe and the European Union in many different strategic ways at the narrative level, but also in terms of politics and policy making like the 17 plus 1 format and some of the usages of the Road and Belt Initiative, etc. So I think maybe by becoming so self-reflexive about our own imperial past, we're no longer able to then actually oppose these kinds of contemporary imperial projects by others. This was the College of Europe podcast, where we debate European affairs and more. This podcast is available on all listening platforms, such as Spotify and Europod. For more information on our website, www.coleurope.eu. Also, don't hesitate to engage with us on social media.